everyone. Welcome back. It's time for another episode of the Difference Makers podcast where I, your host, Dr. Jim Hoven, am trying to take you on a journey, a journey where we're merging expertise, inspiration, and thought leadership all at one time for people making a difference. And today I have two very special guests with me, special to me because they are into something that I'm into, which is conservation and wildlife management, especially at the level of trout. Like that's my favorite. So today my guests are Phil Hirschman, who's the owner of Colorado Pond and Lake and his cohort and bestie, yep. we'll call him bestie. We'll yep. learn more about him in a minute, Mr. Noel Browning. And these two are experts in water management, watershed management and pond installation. And most importantly, environmental conservancy and managing that most precious resource that we have water so guys welcome to the show thanks for joining me hey jim thanks for having us yes absolutely and you know what's cool about this is where we met right we were all i was at the the outdoor sportsman's expo and what you guys had going on there was so intriguing to me that i just had to stop i, I got pulled like a magnet over to it i was seeing some of the pictures and some of the things you guys were doing and it was just a pleasure for me to just to get five minutes of understanding what you guys do and that five minutes led me to say would you be on the show and talk about the very special and unique things that you guys do? So tell us a little bit about what you guys do as a as Colorado Pond Lake. Absolutely. So we are a private uh, consulting company that really focuses on um, proactive management and water quality control. Um, that leads into a lot of different things as far as algae control, um, vegetation control. Um, what drew you in fish stocking? Yeah. Fish yeah. Stocking, fish yeah. stocking, management. um, nutrient control, um, uh, aeration systems. There's a lot of different ways you can, um, improve water quality and we do them all. And um, I think it's important to, to jump in right there actually, Noel, because a lot of people would say, okay. And right. I mean, people understand that we need water, that it is the source of life, but I don't know that they get that water management, they think of, oh, I turn on the tap, I do that, unless you're into the outdoors, you just think turn on the water and it's all good, which yeah. you know some people might even debate that in, at the quality of our water, but let's talk about from your where you guys live and the perspective you have on water. When it comes to a property, first of all, what kinds of properties get ponds and lakes and that kind of thing? Fantastic question, because we really deal from anything to municipalities all the way to just your backyard pond. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have different goals aligned with different resources. So your backyard pond, yeah, we want to make it fishable. We want it to look pretty. Um, municipalities, reservoirs, something on several hundred acres. Uh, the goal is different. It's more functionality. Um, one that Noel can speak really well to um, in that regard is uh, we see a lot of invasive weeds uh, fouling water pumping operations, um, disturbing recreational activities on these large reservoirs. Um, and that's something that we've been uh, heavily involved in correcting. So uh, that's really important because now we're talking about not something that you guys put in. You don't put in these ponds. These things are already here, but they're not, they're not being managed to the level that allows for the ultimate usage of the water and even safety for that matter. Is that right? Exactly. Okay. And yeah. so how do you guys do that? Um, just to go back to your point of just my perspective of it, you know, and how people are um, kind of like ignorant to where their water comes from and kind of how tenuous our situation is in the arid west, um, of, especially in urban metro Denver, all these bodies of water are artificial. 
um, you know, their catchment basins to provide water for people. Um, and they have multi-use for fishing and recreation. But um, yeah, uh, in Colorado, we are dealing with a, scare, a looming scarcity issue. There's more people every day and less water every day. So um, it's going to come to a head. And the, quad, the quality is kind of always somewhat degrading. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been wondering so, about that. So, you know, like people, it's like, oh, you just spray algae and weeds, you know. Uh, we like to think larger scale of that. Like this is important what we do. Um, we're protecting all the uses as far as recreation, drinking, um, are you guys irrigation. Tied then? Sorry, are you tied with municipalities and governmental agencies in order to help assure quality water into the future and the amount of water? Because one of the biggest things that I worry about is urban sprawl with people coming in and the growth. And I asked in economic development uh, group here in one of one of our local municipalities. I said, listen, do you before you just build, do you have to get a water permit to make sure there's enough water coming down that growth is limited by projected water sources, not current? And you know, so I heard the answer that they had, but is that part of what you guys are into as well? We're not too much into water rights. We really rely on attorneys that specialize in that. Um, the states that. Um, really improving on the regulation uh, in, in that regard, especially for new properties, new wells, um, really what, how many wells you can put on a certain amount of acres based on productivity of the aquifer. Um, that's really kind of outside of our wheelhouse. Gotcha. We, we rely You're on, keeping it clean. Yeah. You're keeping it clean. But <laughs> there is just to just speaking on it, just um, yeah, directly. We don't really deal with like development rights or anything, but just knowing to your point that when they develop these, the, the water rights are pretty tenuous too. I mean, I won't name the development near Chatfield, but uh, <laughs> uh, cause I don't want to get in trouble, but uh, man, their water rights situation is pretty tenuous and they're, they're piping it from up here pretty much by North Glen all the way out there. And wow, they have all sorts of, you know, uh, secondary water rights and stuff. So if I were to be, purchasing a house out there no one is to the original point no one knows that you know if this really comes to a head all your rights are going to be junior and you might your tap might be dry so mm. so now let's take it from that because that's probably a whole nother conversation with someone who's into that and that's something that i'm really interested in so um, I'm gonna follow up on that, but with yeah, you guys, that, that's outside of our yeah, life, yeah. <laughs> our company um, that we're getting too we're, zoomed out. <laughs> yeah, we can kind of piggyback on the other facet of that question, though. As far as urban sprawl, is more people, more nutrients, more impervious surfaces that are going into the point that Noel made earlier, um, man-made resources that don't have natural barriers or mechanisms to absorb these nutrients, and so we're fighting it. Um, uh, in, in real time in the resource rather yeah. than having these control measures. I so mean, are you, sorry, are you guys, if someone is building, um, who is a, a customer for you? Because it might be that one of these places, you've seen these developments now. Because when I first met you, I thought of, you know, we have a couple acres and, you know, what would it take to put a pond on it and where would it go and how it works so that I could put some trout in it, this yeah, and that. But which now, is something we do. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And that's how we got to start talking about right, what, yeah, yeah. what I'm thinking now is if a development is going in, and they want a water feature for their community, 
there's a lot that has to go into that, right? Like and how it, do you guys yeah, serve it's, that? It's usually not they want the water feature. It's usually a retention pond. Because they, they just they just took away lot. all the absorption value of the land, probably took away a couple wetlands, and they need to replace that with um, something that can catch all this water. So like they would ask you guys literally to out front in your parking lot. Yeah, you have mm -hmm. one, which is a perfect example. Yes, uh, I've been driving by that for years. You guys need help there too. And it used to have fish <laughs> in it. I understand. I just it, talked to a guy the other day wow. who said he used to catch like fifty plus bluegills and perch oh, wow. out of there a day. So anyway, long time ago. No, so, of course. But yeah, so oftentimes they um, they need to put in these just for urban drainage and the civil engineering side. Um, and I kind of always chuckle because they will, you know, build these communities. They have to put in a storm water retention pond, but then they'll call the community, you know, reflection shores or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. make it look cool <laughs> and make it seem like this retention pond is an amenity to the community which yes. it can be but then the expectations for the community is like hey they told us we could paddleboard on this and fish and it's like well it's a catch basin for all of this above you um and the water quality isn't gotcha. suitable for that yeah so that's kind of where we see that a lot and that's a good it's good for business you know, yeah i'm so. sure so if we take it from that perspective of trying to maintain something that's been there to putting in a new pond when someone decides to put in a pond, what are the typical reasons that they want to do that? Obviously, there's a recreational reason. Are there other reasons why people want to to establish a pond on their personal property? It's usually, um, I mean, aesthetics. That's rec. it's usually recreation yeah. and aesthetics. Okay. It's the main way. Um, there's some fire suppression up in the mountains that you can. It makes it easier to do from a water rights standpoint. Mm -hmm. The states pretty averse to you being like, I want to put in a well and put it on the surface because then you open it up to evaporation and stuff. So they don't want that usually. But if you say, hey, I'll let this be a fire suppression pond. Um, if there's a forest fire, you guys can come pull water out of it with a helicopter or they have the systems where you can pump out. Okay. Um, now, if you add a pond on a property, is that pond now, does it change the ecosystem significantly of that area? In other words, for different kind of wildlife species, insects, because I would imagine if you put yeah, water, sure. you get Absolutely. mosquitoes. And so then you got to put things in that eat yeah. mosquitoes, right? Bugs yeah. or whatever things or trout or something yep. that eat mosquitoes. Is that how it works? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a cascading effect. Um, a lot of people uh, more in rural areas will build little ponds just to attract elk and deer okay. for hunting mm -hmm. um and then yeah there's there's a lot of uh, invertebrate interactions and then it you know cascades down to or up i guess i would say to <laughs> small mammals and so when you do that is it do you have to birds. think of putting in larvae of different insects it's, like do you yeah, do you have to stock the environment with all of the things that take care of the right, other things that's a great question in in some circumstances we will but mostly um it's uh, amazing the vector of a bird um birds will introduce essentially the uh uh micro ecosystem and mm. then uh if we want to if we're stocking this as a recreational resource then we'll 
um, devise uh, a larger food chain, but we really don't have to introduce much of the uh, microfauna or flora. Okay. It is incredible, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, we'll build upon and people will be like, well, now we got to plant, you know, cattails, reeds, and all that sort of Just wait. It will show That's up. That's amazing. Birds and wind. Yeah. Birds yeah, and birds, wind. Yeah. It finds its way. You know, I was life finds a way. That. So, yeah, yeah, life finds a way, yeah, right? It's, it's, <laughs> and then, yeah, and then uh, eventually down the road, they'll have some aquatic vegetation problem. Like, where did this come from? I just built this. Mm-hmm. Just like you said, birds or whatever. You know? And how do you guys manage that? That's one thing. Like, I'll drive by ponds and I'll see that there's. Uh, aeration systems mm-hmm. that are going is that something that goes year-round like if there's ice on the thing does that does it still yeah. aerate what what's how do you keep a pond clean what's the process so there's there's three different ways we can kind of manage a pond and that's uh biological um or i'll start with mechanical because you mentioned it aeration systems yeah mechanical would be like an aeration system or, or, or manual or removal, manual removal mm-hmm. pond skimming something like that okay um, there's biological, which would be like stocking, um, fish, grass um, carb. Yeah. Um, like minnows are great mosquito, uh, mitigators. Yeah. Manipul- mm-hmm. Manipulating the biological environment in some way, whether it be invertebrates, fish. Um, and then there is, um, chemical chemical. Okay. Which, is that probably the and, least desired if you had to pick of the three? Uh, it's it's the last tool we like to use in the box, but it serves its purpose. Um, mm-hmm. And the way that we apply um, chemical, and that also doesn't just um, uh, preclude by the term uh, to just being uh, pesticide. We can use biological chemicals as well that are uh, yeah, which natural. kind of falls under the biological too. Sure. We can put it's like beneficial bacteria that they use in like say wastewater lagoons. We use mm-hmm. that same technology and um, freshwater ponds to kind of shift that um, biome into positive growth, not um, um, negative but, growth. And I, w- I will say just real quick, too, because, you know, it was kind of baked into the question, too. Like, and I put it last, right? Uh, the chemical approach, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone is when you say that word it's immediately people think like skull cross bones you know yeah, yeah uh, silent spring yeah. uh ddt mm-hmm. and it, you know i get that and there has been obviously a lot of tragedies um because of chemicals like that but the the technologies have come a very long way um and they are all very rigorously tested so you know we wouldn't be putting anything out that's not going to benefit the environment um, of your pond or mm-hmm. in general, that's not what we do. Mm-hmm. So, And also another um, aspect of that is that chemical is a lot of times um, a retro response rather than being proactive. And so we prefer to get things set up, especially if we're building a new resource and design in such a manner that we're already doing proactive measures to uh, minimize or mitigate those other issues where we would need just frankly need to use pesticides. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's just, you know, Part it's of got, it. it's gotten too far out of control yeah. because of other unnatural Ab- things. That's absolutely. another thing too. People are like chemicals are unnatural. It's like, so is every, th- this pond is artificial. <laughs> <laughs> so is everything that's happening upstream of it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of. Well, speaking of upstreams, one of the things with that you always think about with an isolated body of water is stagnation, right? If you don't have flow in or you don't have flow out of, of body of water will tend to get right. stagnant. How is that 
manages that through the aeration system mm-hmm. that keeps that yep. going so that you don't have to do You're that. Right. Yeah, so um, aeration systems are, there's kind of a misconception that they're injecting air and oxygen into the lake. What they're actually doing is um, circulating it. All of a lake's um, oxygen comes from the atmosphere, the vast majority of it. So what we're trying to do is expose that entire water column to the atmosphere and to get it as high oxygen as possible in mm-hmm. oxidative environment. Um, a lot of your problems are solved so. for sure. And, uh, degassing as a second fold, like relieving carbon dioxide and, uh, hydrogen harmful sulfide. gases like hydrogen sulfide that build up in the, uh, benthic bed layer. And is that, does the aeration do that too? Mm-hmm. It, it adds in and it takes out. Yes. Adds in oxygen, takes and it, out it's gases. It's just by virtue of the same circulation. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, so yeah. Okay. Like you were saying, just keeping that water turning over, it's it kind of has the effect of a rip stream in, stream out. Mm-hmm. You know, we want the water moving as much as possible, usually. And it depends on the goals. You know, you asked earlier, do they run 24-7 during the winter? It depends, you know. Some people mm-hmm. want to ice skate, so we turn it off in the winter. But, I see. Or run it selectively. And yeah. that's a good thing to bring up, too, as far as, um, especially for fit, managing a fishery where somebody's not trying to ice skate on or play hockey, mm-hmm. um, we want to keep that water open at least to a degree um, so that there is that atmospheric exchange through the winter. Um, right. And so uh, that's uh, one of the crucial tools in achieving uh fisheries health throughout the winter is yeah. um the bubble action from the aerator won't let ice form above it mm-hmm. right um, one analogy i always use is like um when a lake freezes over it's essentially holding its breath until spring when it because it has it you can get a little oxygen through it through photosynthesis if the ice is clear and you get some uh, light penetration you get phytoplankton vegetation uh, photosynthesizing, giving a little oxygen, but once it's like snow covered, it's holding its breath for. So that's when wow. you see, um, like shallower ponds, and um, that's when you see winter kills. Right. You know, it only takes, uh, you know, fifteen minutes of sagged oxygen, and fish is all your fish are gone. So. And that's what we were talking about earlier. For those of you that are watching or listening, is um, when it comes to fisheries, they can be very sensitive and. Um, when you talk about a winter kill, that's where the, the fish don't get the nutrients, oxygen, et cetera, that they need and they, they die. Mm-hmm. And that makes me think of in in the fishing world, we can fish all year. For example, if we go to a tailwater, such as if you go to Brillo Rudai and fish the frying pan or something, right. you're fishing that warmer water because the lake turns over, right? So that the warmer water is now at the bottom as opposed to at the top in the summer. How deep does a pond or lake have to be before it turn before it's deep enough to turn over versus just freezing all the way to the bottom? Oh yeah, well, it, lakes won't really freeze all the way to the bottom. Okay, um, to get like, I mean, thermal stratification happens at very um, low or shallow or ponds. You know, like you like a backyard pond. You know, when you're swimming in it and your toes are cold. You know, that's thermal stratification, but. Uh, or you dive down, say, eight feet, and it's a mm-hmm. lot colder, right? Um, so that happens pretty quick. And then, um, yeah, in the spring when that flips, that's a turnover. Um, so it can happen at pretty shallow um, depths. And um, just to tie into that in general to, like, your best chance of avoiding winter kill is having 
a third of your lake over about 12 feet deep because um, then that lower um, shallower section holds oxygen better because it's colder colder water holds oxygen better um, so that's just yeah, kind of a rule sense. of thumb we use if we're like building the pond or try to keep one section at that 12 foot a third of it yeah right? minimum yeah yeah but i mean it can, there's so many factors that well how long does it take give give me the the short version of the process of from flat ground someone says i want to put in a blank you have to decide how big and all that kind of stuff but once you decide that what's the process of creating a lake from nothing it, it's pretty quick honestly right. um and that's provided that uh, you have all your water rights secured and all that, but just physically, um, just come out with an excavator, remove material. Ideally, we're able to spread material on the property without having to remove it. Um, come back with a liner. Um, back. And what's the liner made out of? It depends, um, but for something like uh, this example, we'll just say synthetic plastic liner and will that last forever or does the liner go bad and leak and then the water starts to seep into the ground uh, it, it will last as long as you and i yeah, okay <laughs> yeah. it's a lifetime it's, warranty yeah, pretty, it's, yeah. it's so, come a long way yeah they they cover it with like geotextile and other natural materials um okay and depending on the geology you might not even need a liner if it's i mean rock. around colorado you kind of usually do but mm -hmm. so you lay this liner down then what happens uh, it's like plastic welded together and um, there's like a lock trench at the top and um, then it's covered with uh, topsoil and um, fill her up pretty much. Mm -hmm. And do you fill it up with just using tap water? Like what? how do you usually, truck in a water Well, source? yeah, it's usually a well um, or it's some sort of stream diversion. Yeah, if there's no spring or stream, uh, then typically a well. Yeah. But there has to be some sort of inflow, right? Or you have to, you'd have to keep adding water because of evaporation. Or how do you keep the the thing right. with the well? Yeah, there'd be a level sensor, so it would just automatically kick on and kind yeah. of top it off as it evaporates. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Does it bring more birds of prey oh, yeah. around? Because I know at a fish hatchery, we do when we stock fish. <laughs> yeah, they yeah, they yeah. know they somehow they just know. They, Blue yeah, we joke they follow our truck around because <laughs> it's amazing how like uh, a fish or a pond will be like fishless for 10 years right they'll be like I haven't had fish in here 10 years I just bought the house whatever um, and we'll stock it and the next day herons it's like how <laughs> that fast the herons yeah, will be there we're not bird people but I'm sure there's especially at <laughs> altitude yeah um, yeah it's like do they check on them all the time right you know and right there's got to be some it's sense. fascinating I was at a place uh, fishing this kind of a, a private property place where they had some lakes and a stream it's called Rainbow Falls up, up off of bike oh, yeah, up there, there. Yep. and uh, they had a, a fish hatchery there yep. and the guy told me when he first bought it th there was no covering over the over the waterway of the hatchery, oh, yeah. he said overnight he had just put in thousands of dollars of fish. Overnight they were gone, <laughs> like yeah. they got wiped out. So he learned a valuable lesson in buying that. Yeah, on how, like you say, those birds somehow they they come in and they figure that out. I yeah. was blown away by that. Uh, yeah, other even uh, herons, otters are will eat an incredible amount of fish in a short period of time. I've even heard of raccoons, raccoons coyotes, bears. Okay. bears for sure. Yeah. I wow. saw a video of Montana of a mountain lion fishing too. 
Wow. Which is, I don't think they've seen that before. No, I think it was last cool. year. It was it was in a stream and a hatchery, but yeah, I've never seen even you know that. life will find a way. Life finds a way. <laughs> and so when you guys are looking at doing putting in uh, fish, then at that point, is it something that you talk to the person, the owner, and you go, okay, look at this pond is or lake is X Y Z number of acres yep. that can support this kind of stuff. Do you want multi-species? Do you just want one species? Or do you always need multi-species to kind of keep each yeah. other in check? How, how do you go through that process? You essentially nailed it. It's really um, in that scenario, like what your goals are. Um, so if you want trout, um, we would we would work up a density, uh, stocking density recommendation based on the physical characteristics of the pond. Um, and then go back and say, okay, we could do this many rainbow, this many tiger, this many brooks or browns if you want to have diversity. And then we're going to recommend that we stock minnows or some kind of forage population um, in this example. Mm-hmm. Um, Noel, you could talk to larger yeah. stockings um, on the yeah, scale I mean, like reservoirs. Yeah, so yeah, just kind of like warm water species too. You, There's kind of just like a there's some normal species that are always available like largemouth bass bluegill and fathead minnows right Mm -hmm. so those are kind of just like a general food web that we like to do and we do that at certain ratios to each other um, to make sure that you know if you put in the same amount of bluegill and bass those bluegill are going to be gone immediately so right you want to stock, um, you know like a 50 to 1 or something like that where there's going to be enough bluegill to survive predation, um, to reproduce, and then same thing cascading down to the minnows, mm-hmm. um, enough to survive predation, reproduce. So then, hopefully, we just stock it once, and you guys have, wow. you know, without harvest and yeah. other birds. And <laughs> yeah, but, but, <laughs> but that's the goal another... is to be self-sustaining. I mean, with trout, it's different because they can't uh, spawn in ponds and lakes. No, oh. that, but that's another interesting yeah. uh, part of fisheries management is um, once again, Noel, you could speak better to this than I can. But as far as coming back and uh, surveying and making sure the populations have actually held the desired numbers and that were still balanced, um, and then take corrective action from yeah. there. If I see, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we can go at any time whether we stocked it or not um, and do. Uh, surveying through different methods. It's usually uh, gill nets or electrofishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can check those ratios the same way, you know, using um, uh, deduction kind of, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, sampling. Extrapolate, it's a, the, it's extrapolate random, the numbers. Right, yeah, extrapolation. That's yeah. the word I was looking for. Thank you. Oh, okay. Um, stratified random sampling. Um, mm-hmm. So we can check those ratios, predator-prey ratios. Um, and then we can also tell body condition using like length and weight measurements mm-hmm. um, and see essentially how they're eating. Um, so you can be like, hey, all your bass are super skinny. And it's usually directly correlated to those ratios for predator to prey. So then we can manipulate that population by like you need to either start harvesting bass of this size or stock more bluegill or you know there's all sorts of different scenarios and do you guys notice a big change or evolution in the technology that you use and what you do we've talked already about some of the chemicals they've they've come a long way you're always looking to make sure that those are healthy aeration systems i'm sure probably change i don't know if you use any kind of infrared or there has the technology evolved in 
lake and pond management? Yeah, that's so, a great question. It is. And surprisingly, yes, because it's not um, uh, a young industry. Um, but no, new technology comes out every year, and some of it uh, is is bunk. Um, we could talk about <laughs> yeah. ozone. There is and, a lot of snake oil. Yeah. Okay. Nanobubbles mm-hmm. and stuff that people will sell as quick solutions. But mm-hmm. uh, new technology that... Um, even though being new, we could say it, it's scientifically sound and tried and test at least in like uh, the manufacturer's settings before putting on the market. Right. Um, oxygen saturation technology is a different type of aeration system that's been coming out lately. And the idea of that is basically uh, to change the dynamic for larger um, reservoirs or resources where you don't want to break the stratification of a lake that um the, that density Those temperature layer. differences um, yeah that's... so you in, in this circumstance you're actually pumping in pure oxygen um and by doing that in such fine uh so it's well, it's soluble um so it doesn't create bubbles and disrupt that that layer that mm-hmm. stratification got it yeah and a lot of what you're fighting's a lot in water quality issues is bottom release so of course there's uh, like say phosphorus is coming in through um, runoff right through people's lawns whatever that's external loading there's also a, a d- big degree of internal loading which is from the pond sediments and that is really at risk of happening when you're at very low oxygen at the bottom um, so by employing technology like that which is you know there's different types of it they've been doing it for years you know like space cones and stuff like that but um that is a way to if you hyper oxygenate the bottom of a lake it essentially um caps it and it solves a lot of water quality issues especially on a reservoir scale like a lot of our local colorado reservoirs are dealing with that and there's some i mean aurora reservoir has been dealing with uh they have an oxygen saturation and it's shown amazing results. Good. So so I think one of the most important things that you guys do for what I've taken away from this is this connection of making sure that urban water sources are professionally and um, appropriately managed so that they can be safe for not only the inhabitants of the water body, but also for the people that engage in either recreational activities or drinking that water, it seems to me like that's a big, big role of what you guys do. Is that accurate as a company? Absolutely. That's definitely our mission is to, you know, um, make it, make the water the best quality for all of the stakeholders involved. There's a lot of stakeholders, you know, Mm -hmm. so, you know, agricultural, uh, just people's home use, irrigation, recreation, uh, wildlife so just, yeah just enjoy living in colorado colorado damn it yeah <laughs> exactly and, right and there's not much of it so we better take care of what we, we have we gotta so take it's care. Not like <laughs> yeah it's not a, a limitless uh supply exactly yeah so um as we wind up i'd like to know from you guys what is it that you most get from doing what you do emotionally um from an engagement process why this because you guys are obviously both bright guys do your thing you've chosen this to be your making your dent on the world through this how does this do that absolutely i would i would say like um 
it, it is a really rewarding um, profession when you can see a project through um, when you're it's tangible yeah presented um, with a unique problem and you really have to think of you know we're not selling copiers here you know we yes. gotta we gotta think of a u- unique solution so um, you know day to day every day is different that's great for mentally yeah. Um, <laughs> and and every every resource is different. So yeah. we kind of have a, a I don't want to necessarily say blanket approach, but you you, you kind of know basic your basic tools that you're going to um, tackle a problem with. But there's like the forensic or problem solving aspect right. that's extremely rewarding. Yeah. Um, getting to work outside, yeah, um, at least partially, not so much this time of year. Yeah, it's something so we've we've getting been getting better at is. Uh, doing just like before and after pictures of just like, hey, this is when we started, and it really helps people see that uh, what we do is um, important, uh, useful, and effective. So absolutely, uh, well, it's been a great pleasure for you guys to have you on. I mean, yeah, I feel absolutely. much more educated on this topic, and and it brings home to me the importance of water management, water conservation, even. As far as I hope people watch and listen will take this like how can I apply this even if I don't have a water resource in my home or my property or whatever you're part of the issue or you're part of the solution and you know how long are your showers what do you do this are you clean with that are you are you thinking about it and so I hope this has opened the the eyes and the minds of a lot of people to start thinking about water in a new way from a new perspective if people wanted to get a hold of you to talk about either putting in a pond, managing their pond, asking you more questions, learning about what you do, wanting to help out in some way. How would they do that? Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. You can either, uh, the easiest way to find us is just go to our website. It's www.copondandlake.com. And from there, you can have your choice of, uh, if you're phone shy, you could just send us an online submission uh, on the contact us page or just pick up the phone and call us from there. Um, Your preference. We'll be here. For sure. Awesome. Well, everyone watching and listening, I hope you enjoyed the show today. It was a, a fascinating dive into water, no pun intended there. <laughs> but um, if you enjoyed this, please make sure to share this with someone, uh, get the word out about our podcast, what we're trying to do, like us, you know all the things to do. You guys are way more social media savvy than I, but follow us, engage, like us. We would really appreciate because it's things like this that allows us to have people like this on our show and really making a difference. So until next time, enjoy your day and you too, go make a difference.